I would love to look back on my career and the career of my contemporaries and know that we changed the way society viewed gardeners. Thank you for joining me for another episode. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. In his new book, New Naturalism, Kelly Norris speaks to us as gardeners and to the changing relationship we have with our gardens. Kelly Norris is the former director of horticulture and education at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Gardens and is one of the leading horticulturalists of his generation. Kelly was born and raised in the Midwest where there is a growing culture of native plants, preservation, and restoration. A culture of diversity. A culture of the prairie. In his new book, Kelly shares with us his unique perspective as a plantsman and designer for what he calls his plant-driven designs. For Kelly, Plants form the most important role in the ever-changing challenges that we face in our gardens. I wanted to talk with Kelly about this approach and about his career as a designer and plantsman. A career that has resulted in this wonderful book, New Naturalism. Here is my conversation with Kelly Norris. One of the things that really struck me while reading your book was this desire to get to know you better. So let's start there. Where did your interest in plants in the garden really begin? I've heard that it really started at a very young age. It did start at a very young age. I was blessed to grow up in a rural part of the country where my family was engaged in agriculture. Connection to the land was something that was prevalent in my family as part of the cultural lifestyle that I grew up in. And I looked back at one point in college and realized that three generations back on either side of my family, there were gardeners in every one of those echelons on both sides of the family. I was particularly influenced by my maternal grandmother, who uh, was, was a diligent and keen gardener. I remember planting squash in uh, mountains, as I called them, because they were big mound hills of soil, and collecting seeds and doing that sort of thing. And, and, I, and I, I had a garden from a relatively young age. I mean, I, I was always sort of permitted to have a space. And then when my parents bought their farm in... 1997, I was about 10 years old, I really had the chance then to, to begin making a garden. And so those, uh, th that journey with plants began quite young. Another thing that I have taken from your book is that you have a strong underlying desire, not only to share with people ways to garden, but also why to garden. What is the most important thing a person can bring to a garden? A garden is 
laboratory of curiosities and exploration. It is perhaps the closest that our species can get to really understanding nature in the context of how we have architected our own social ecology. Most of us live in cities or suburbs or an urban area of some kind. And I grew up in a rural part of the country, and yet I'm now this, I'm, I'm now an urbanist myself. And so I feel like I have this kind of journey of sorts to reflect on that, you know, no matter where you make a garden, quite honestly, to, to tend what Thomas Jefferson said was a rich spot of earth uh, is something that is, I think, deeply satisfying emotionally and psychologically, but I also think it's deeply stimulating intellectually. We, we bring our own journey to the garden uh, as we as we come to it. And so when I when I am in the garden, my mind is most alive. I I write in the garden. I drag a notebook with me because it, my mind just is in motion uh, when I'm when I'm closest to the ground. Who are some of your early influences? And how have these influences brought you to where you are today? I heard once in college, I was at a seminar of sorts, and this wise speaker said that you should find inspiration in everything. And I've sort of adopted that as a bit of a motto. And in that way, I've come to realize I relate to people like the fashion designer, Paul Smith, who sort of famously has a collection of found objects and artistic things that, that come to inspire his patterns and textiles and what have you. And so it, it's this sort of, you know, casting a wide net. Uh, but I find inspiration for making plantings in, in everything, art, especially music. I'm a musicophiliac. And I actually would say that the first two people that come to mind when you ask me a question like that are, are Lauren Springer, you know, the book that, that she wrote with Scott Ogden in 2005, Plant Driven Design, which came out as I was graduating high school and starting college, was a book that spoke to me deeply. It captured to me what was important about gardens and design, which was plants. <laughs> it, was, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the art of the lines. It wasn't the way the edges were trimmed. It wasn't any of this stuff. It was plants. But frankly, the, the, the space they claimed intellectually in that book was to say, look, we have to put plants, again, at the focus of how we make gardens. These aren't purely aesthetic endeavors. These are place, These are endeavors with plates. So that was a very significant book for me. I would say the other author was actually Keith Wiley's On the Wild Side, uh, Experiments in New Naturalism, where I cite maybe the original uh, circumscription of that term in the horticultural lingo. Keith was one of the first people to really apply that in a, in a prominent way. And, you know, his approach was a very kind of ecological approach in, in kind of replicating these kinds of garden habitats and really kind of inferring from the natural dynamics, the ecological dynamics of wild plant communities, crossing that over into the into the horticultural landscape. And you know, from there, of course, I had exposure to a lot of things. So, do you really think we need gardens? And why do you think they're so important? I mean, why not just leave nature to itself? Well, we absolutely need gardens. We, we oh, I love that question. <laughs> <laughs> what is so interesting 
is that our most recent memories of what we deem to be wild are in fact really reflections of agroecology that earlier peoples, especially indigenous peoples in North America, practiced because of the relationship they had with landscape. So take the prairie, for example. I'm a boy of the prairie. This whole memory, this whole conception of the natural heritage of prairie is largely a view that we have onto history that we often forget is grounded in this idea that people were here affecting the ecology of that landscape for thousands and thousands of years prior to the colonization of white European settlers. And so I think it's so easy sometimes because ecology is an inherently guilty science, even in the foundational texts of ecology. And in fact, humans are part of nature. Our very existence is that we, we have gardened the spaces around us, whether we've, we've done so for pleasure or for sustenance. And so gardening is this innate part of our ecology. We don't think about it that way because we, the, the term as it rests in our lexicon today is a, uh, seems like an amenity, when in fact it's really just an extension of this agroecological practice, this, this sort of disturbance that we are in the landscapes that we live in, regardless of whether that's in North America or anywhere else on the face of the planet. I mean, we've, humans have been gardening the, the world around them for as, as long as they've evolved higher orders of intelligence and, and civilized structures. And so I, I think it's, you know, it, so the question is absolutely we need gardens because we need to now sort of reclaim some of that maybe lost heritage of ourselves to, to, to garden nature to garden the wild because we have disturbed perhaps so maximally the world that we occupy now we have to sort of find our balance again in that space you've kind of addressed my next question but i think we can go further how has being brought up in the midwest and you say you're 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 a person of the prairie how has being brought up in the the midwest in the prairie itself influenced the way you design and garden? You know, the prairie today is largely a memory. In Iowa, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the landscape that was here 250 years ago is still here. So I'm a boy of the prairie, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm made of the prairie tradition less so than maybe the landscape as we find it today. Yet, the mid-continent of the country, of course, gives us a lot of lessons ecologically because you know, the, the prairie is a relatively well-studied ecological system in this country. And the dynamics of a highly competitive grassland as applied to sunny exposures in residential landscapes is actually a, a, a pretty prudent precedent. And so... I think growing up in a place where even in those scraps of one-tenth of one percent, I could still experience that that sheer ecological density and learn from that, but also that sense of immersion and that that sense of finding a landscape that was remnant and feral and amid this cultural landscape of agriculture – I think that sense of discovery and that 
sense of seeking something is, is, is a psychological underpinning to the way I think about the experience of gardens beyond simply just their aesthetics. Let's talk about your book a little bit. What inspired you to write New Naturalism? I have been practicing in these interfaces of horticulture and ecology for a good bit. I, I mean, the first, the first garden that I really endeavored to make in a kind of habitat-driven sort of mindset, again, sort of, you know, uh, borrowing from the inspiration of Keith Wiley, was actually back in 2006, the greatest magic of gardening is really a journey through time and watching planting situate themselves into place. And so I'm, I feel lucky that I was a curious enough kid with tolerant and accepting enough parents to just let, to have the space to create something like that at such a young age and have now been able to sort of watch it, literally watch the ecology of the garden uh, proceed and in some ways challenge every assumption I made. But of course, that's, that's how we learn and that's how we grow. So you know, the book then is this sort of summation of kind of the current conversation of horticulture today, which is heavily influenced by, I think, an emotional modernism, a, rom a romantic modernism, perhaps on one end of the spectrum by people like Pete Aldolf, and, and and perhaps also on the other end of the spectrum, you know, this this very biodiversity, ecologically centric approach to making gardens and landscapes may be best represented by somebody like Doug Tallamy. And so, you know, the book, The New Naturalism, attempts to kind of assess all of that and translate that for a home gardener. For all of the things being said out there, out all to Tallamy, there's really not a text that really delivered that in a, in a conversational way to a home gardener who, who, is both motivated and interested in doing the right things, but maybe needs a little encouragement for how to sort of get going. Um, I think you just answered my, my next question, which was, what is your new naturalism? It has nothing to do with what I may, may or may not know. It has everything to do with what, what readers don't know and what they want to know and how they want to, to change the way they garden. So, you know, new naturalism, you know, for me is, again, this assessment of, of where gardening is, is kind of at and in hopes that it encourages and, and inspires people to, to hop on to, you know, to start to take on that journey. And I, I hope that people, if they read this and they are inspired by it, you know, can take an honest look at their garden and probably acknowledge that, you know, they're not starting from scratch. I mean, our, our gardens are nature. It's just a matter of how much nature maybe they have by virtue of how aware we are of what the garden is doing. You know, how do you see the way we are gardening is changing? I think what's changing is that we're suddenly aware that it's not a personal odyssey for humans. There's life out there. There's other creatures out there. And, you know, I started the book by kind of addressing that. I, I actually don't think that point is lost on people. But we're very quick to categorize what is good nature and what is bad nature. You know, butterflies are good, deer are bad. <laughs> you know, bulls, bad, uh, songbirds, good. We tend to sort of arbitrarily dice these things up into value sets as opposed to actually understanding these things first. So I think that as we embrace a wider view of, of the nature of gardens, the nature of planting, we're becoming aware that 
some of those value assessments just don't matter. <laughs> we have the ability and the power to affect the trajectory of the world 0.2 acres at a time. Our, our gardens are not trivial. They are not exceptions to the world around them. They're the, in some ways, as research is, un, is showing us and underscoring, the last stitches that are holding together the frayed patchwork of this ecological quilt uh, that we have torn and ripped and teared away at, to embrace that opportunity to affect, as we might see it in a positive direction, the biodiversity and connections that those creatures have to one another and to the greater environment through the course of our gardening, what gardener out there says, I'm sorry, I'm not on board with that? Then maybe the biggest struggle is, how do I begin? And that's what I hope new naturalism does for people, is give them some place to start. So how does your book address the important environmental issues we face, and how can a garden make a difference? Well, I think, I think this book underscores that once again, plants are the focus of the garden. As the producers, as the foundations of ecosystems around the planet, if we can make thoughtful, site-specific, resonant planting choices that relate to place, that relate to each other, in a way that ensures some amount of resiliency, we can have and we can make a, a positive contribution to the greater vegetation and ecology of the environments we live in. Plant with the idea that the garden may have a life of its own that, it, that, that is self-perpetuating beyond simply the life support that the gardener affords it. Our planting choices can be more than static, can be more than some or ornamental depiction in a frame but in fact could be three-dimensional with respect to time and how plants change and evolve and recede and spread and in some cases even die and leave the garden entirely, leave the community as we've designed and planted it, actually gets us closer to a greater ecology. And so I just, I just want people to plant more densely, to plant complexly. The one thing I hope I do in the book is get us away from these sort of arguments about native versus non-native, and this, these, these simple binary arguments, and start to kind of break those open into a third dimension and understand that with climate change and the complexity of forces acting on our environment at any one time, the landscape is in motion. You know, when we plant diversely and complexly, we create landscapes that have inherent amount of resiliency to be able to withstand those challenges. I just want more plants. <laughs> I just want people to have more plants in gardens. I just want more vegetation, more complexity, more plants. My next question was going to be is, how do you see the role of plants changing the way we garden? You know, maybe one of the greatest case studies, Great Dixter funded a comprehensive ecological survey of their property in England. And the net net on that endeavor was that that garden, highly horticultural, highly cultivated, and also quite old, by the way, 100 plus years of activity taking place on that property, 
that the horticultural areas of that property actually were the greatest harbingers of biodiversity. Now, it's not that the, the wilder areas on the property were, were certainly vacant. They were quite rich, too. The gardens were richer. It was both. It was conjunctive. It was the gardens and the wild areas that created this amazing refugia across all trophic levels, wild plants, wild animals, fungi, lichens, all of these, this, this whole pantheon of life captured in its juiciest, richest density in one of the most highly horticultural gardens on the planet. And I, I just, I think that there is, there are just profound lessons that we have yet to really know because we haven't even asked and answered all the questions about what happens when you create highly diverse, complex vegetation inside the frame that you and I might call a garden. I think that's a clarion call for just more plant diversity in landscapes. Absolutely, our landscape should be built from native foundations. And there's very few people in this country that would, I would stand in line behind with regards to my passion for the flora of this country. I, I, I have explored it intimately, and I will do so for the rest of my life. But the sheer amount of plant diversity that exists on this continent, that is as of yet uncelebrated in the containers that you and I might call a garden, is vast. We have to keep gardening with, with that memory and that forward vision of what wildness and nature can be. And that simply requires more plant diversity to do it with. What else might you add to the question of what the garden represents to you? I often wondered if I was suggesting that people rewild their garden or if I was suggesting that we simply just endeavor to garden the wild. And again, I think it's both because I think gardens is to tie it back to the original place we started at. I mean, gardens are such a, a, a seeming amenity to our existence as we've defined it in, in our present culture. But it seems quite odd that given that vocabulary that we could garden the wild. So, so the, maybe the first step is just loosening up gardens and sort of rewilding them to simply invite more life. But I think what's interesting, too, is this idea of intervening, which is a very, you know, Hank Garrett's an idea. And I know that you, you have a, an interest in his uh, work. And, and obviously, he is maybe a name that, that fewer people know today. But Garrettson wrote extensively about these ideas about intervention, about sort of, you know, like jumping on a bus that was already traveling somewhere, that, that our landscapes were really just at these intersections of some wild force, some wild movement in place that we were simply kind of crossing paths with as we dithered around out there, planting and pruning and what have you. And, and that all of that, once we were out of the picture, sort of sorted itself out into whatever journey, you know, it's a sort of, a destiny or a journey with no no point of destination. So again, I think it's I think it's both. So I look at my garden here at home at Three Oaks in Des Moines, and it is this odyssey of sorts. It is this landscape that connects so deeply to its place and to its context. You know, somebody asked me, well, what was your vision for it? I don't know that I had one. I'm waiting I'm waiting to see what the journey brings. 
And that's just such a different way of thinking about gardens. So lastly, what do you see as the most important change that needs to take place in our gardens besides more plants? Besides more plants, uh, maybe the most important thing that we could change about our gardens is who's gardening them. Maybe that's a tall order for most people. You know, we live in a complicated world, and gardens are places of respite and escape uh, from the troubles of humanity. I get it. And I'm not trying to take any of that away. I mean, my garden is my greatest escape. So maybe, maybe if the idea of changing yourself sounds like too tall of an order, maybe the first thing you should do is, is actually to stop doing anything in the garden. Just putter and watch. I just, I just literally like love being in the garden and living with the garden. Abundance is captivating and enthralling. The kind of experience that our brains struggle to make sense of, instead defaulting to awe, a feeling of reverence and wonderment. What if more gardens, no matter their size, struck people with awe? I hope you'll plant one and find out. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kelly Norris and that you get a chance to read this wonderful book, New Naturalism. Since starting this podcast some three years ago, I have come to know and understand just how important and beautiful the Midwest really is. So I would like to take this opportunity to thank everyone across the Midwest for your incredible support for Nature Revisited. From St. Louis to Milwaukee, from Chicago to Tulsa, we truly appreciate it. Thank you. This edition of Nature Revisited is being sponsored by the Osmia Bee Company, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Osmia Bee Company, providing you with everything you need to raise bees native to North America right in your backyard. Whether you're a farmer, home gardener, or hobbyist, saving the bees starts with you. OsmiaBee.com. I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues, and subscribe to Nature Revisited on your favorite podcast server. You can also follow us on Instagram, YouTube, or our website, NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments, please send them to us through our website contact page, and we will share them on our Instagram page. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature.